0: This week, on Myths and Legends, we're back on our road to the Trojan War, and we'll learn that if you're going to marry off your daughter to an epic Greek hero, it might be a good idea to tell that epic hero sooner than 10 minutes before the ceremony. The creature this week is Evil Chicken. A giant evil chicken that lives in the dark forest and will eat you, because of course it will. This is Myths and Legends, episode 158. Fate proceeds. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. This week, we're back on the boat to the Trojan War, where Agamemnon has a problem. I mean, he has a lot of problems all the time in the mythology, but this one is pressing. When we last left the Greeks, they were recruiting for the Trojan War because Helen had absconded slash been abducted by the Trojan prince Paris. About 12 years ago, when all the Greek kings, princes, and heroes were competing for Helen's hand, they swore an oath to come to the aid of Helen or her future husband. Well, cut to over a decade later, and Agamemnon decided to call all the men to honor their oaths. So they did. They gathered their people together, left their homes and lands only marginally defended, and boarded the ships to sail east. They were already not happy about being on this road trip when the car broke down, in a 13th century BC manner of speaking. On their last stop, the wind stopped, and they were stranded at Aulis And Agamemnon, the commander of the Greek forces, knew exactly why. Agamemnon looked out at the ships on the harbor. It was choked with them. They should have been halfway across the Aegean Sea by now. Halfway to Troy. No one wanted to be here. Husbands had been taken from their wives. Fathers from their children. Fields were overgrown, untended, and undefended. It will be quick, Agamemnon had told them. Besides, they had no choice. They had all sworn an oath on that day. The day that Helen chose her husband. An oath 12 years gone had gotten the men here. But would it keep them here? They had favorable winds when they stopped off at Aulis to get supplies. It was their last gasp, their last chance to feel the Greek soil before heading across the sea. It was only supposed to be a few days. That had been over a month ago. The winds had died with the deer. Agamemnon the high king of the Greeks, had been hunting with a small party. His brother, Menelaus, the wily Odysseus, and the seer, Calchas. Agamemnon knocked an arrow and let it fly as his quarry, a boar, bolted. The arrow veered through the trees and the four men heard the cry. Agamemnon was the first to part the branches and see the deer bleeding out in the grove. Calchas wouldn't even approach it. It was an accident, but Artemis, the Olympian goddess of the hunt in the wilderness, didn't care about his intentions, just the deer dead in her sacred grove. As soon as the deer became still, the winds at Ulis stopped. They hadn't started back up again. Agamemnon broke open the wine and directed them to a nearby town where he told his men to enjoy themselves. They would be taking to sea shortly, but they hadn't taken to sea shortly. The men, numbering in the thousands, were now growing restless. The wine and food, the provisions for the voyage across the sea, were running low. The warriors were growing tired with the women from a nearby village. And, well, they were warriors. They were promised glory and plunder. The only thing that would make leaving their children to watch their crops rot on the vine worth anything. Now, they were sitting at a port, looking out on a sea of glass. You know what you have to do. Calchas said. Odysseus hung like a specter in the back of the tent. He had guessed it, even before Calchas had received word from the gods, detailing what it would take to get everything moving again. Menelaus only stewed in anger and anxiety, constantly thinking about what Helen was doing in the city of Troy. He told Agamemnon that they had made a promise, long ago, when they were nothing but exiles, to never let anything come between them, would a king now go back on the promise of an exile? Agamemnon, who had been opening and closing the letter all night, vacillating between sending the missive back home to Mycenae and calling the whole attack on Troy off, looked into his brother's eyes. He nodded and handed the letter to Cautius, who disappeared to get it on the first messenger back. Who is he, anyway? This Achilles, Agamemnon asked. Not anyone you want as an enemy. Odysseus replied, crossing his arms. Thanks, real helpful, the high king of the Greeks replied. But then Odysseus sighed. He was getting as restless as his men, and it didn't help that, by leaving for Troy, he had all but doomed them. The prophet had said that when he left for Troy, he wouldn't return for ten years, and then only destitute and alone. Still, this was the path he was on, and Agamemnon was the king. The sooner they left this place, the sooner they would get to Troy. And the sooner they left Troy, the sooner he would get back home to Penelope and Telemachus. Odysseus said that Achilles, the young man, though barely a young man, was not to be underestimated. He was the son of an argonaut and a goddess. He was trained by the same centaur that trained Hercules, Theseus, Jason, and others. He was destined to bring victory to them all. Whatever, Agamemnon replied. He doesn't need to know until she gets here. He doesn't need to know I just sent a letter saying that he's marrying my daughter. Odysseus grimaced. He came for war, for honor. He didn't like this business. Agamemnon, still looking out on the entirety of the Greek force, asked the king of Ithaca to leave him. Odysseus nodded and left. Agamemnon stood like a statue until Odysseus's footsteps melted into the sounds of conversation from the camp below. When he was certain he was alone, he rushed to his desk, to the scroll he had hidden under some animal skins. Glancing back warily, he penned a second message. One to his wife, Clytemnestra, saying to ignore the first message. To avoid coming to Ullis at all costs. No matter what she heard, or what he, Agamemnon, had said. Agamemnon stepped back from the scroll, and whistled. A servant appeared at the door, one who already had his orders. Agamemnon handed him the scroll, and told him to run, Avoid the normal routes, avoid the other messenger, but get to Mycenae as quickly as possible. His family's future depended on it. What is this? Menelaus demanded from Agamemnon. Days later, Agamemnon saw the scroll in his hands. He replied that Menelaus knew exactly what it was. What, was he spying on his brother now? They were all here because Menelaus couldn't control his bride. Wasn't this enough for him? What would ever be enough for him? Menelaus threw it into a nearby fire. There was more at stake here than Menelaus's honor. There were thousands of men out there. Thousands of warriors who were out for blood. They had been cramped in those ships or camping out on the beach for weeks now. If they knew that Agamemnon was putting his own family above war, these men had left families of their own. They would turn around and storm Mycenae. Everyone would die. What if it was Hermione? Agamemnon managed, though he was deep in thought. Remember, Hermione was Menelaus' daughter with Helen. Agamemnon could see the men now, the ones outside on the verge of bloodshed. He could see them, denied of the plunder and glory of Troy and taking it out on Mycenae, on Agamemnon's heir, his baby boy, Orestes. His dynasty will be murdered in its crib. All that he fought for, all that they fought for, for naught. He knew it had to be done. He wouldn't be sending another scroll. But maybe you should, Menelaus remarked. With the mention of Hermione, he realized that he had asked too much of his brother. He had asked too much of Greece. Just then, a messenger entered, but it wasn't one of theirs. He was from Mycenae, and he traveled ahead of Clytemnestra and Iphigenia, Agamemnon's daughter, the one that was to be married to Achilles. They received the message, and Iphigenia had clamored to leave that day. She thanked the gods. She had heard of Achilles, the king of the Myrmidons, and she couldn't believe her good fortune. Clytemnestra left the other two children at home, but came along with young Orestes. He was too young to leave. They were resting at a spring not an hour's ride out, letting the horses graze. As soon as everyone was refreshed, they'd catch the horses, and if could come meet her new husband. Menelaus' face was ashen. Send her back. Send them all back. But Agamemnon shook his head. Menelaus had been right the first time. It had to be done. If he sent her back now, Haltus would tell the whole army what he had done, how they would never go to Troy. Menelaus's hand rested on his sword. There were ways to keep men from talking. And Odysseus and whoever else the gods spoke to next, Agamemnon shouted, it had to be done. Fate proceeds, he uttered to the messenger and wondered how he would look into the face of Clytemnestra, his wife, and his queen. Clytemnestra watched as Iphigenia ran to her father, and flung herself on the man's chest. Of all of her children, Iphigenia loved her father best, and even though he knew he shouldn't say this, he loved Iphigenia best. He had been away for a long time, and this whole thing was unexpected. A marriage arrangement on the eve of war? But Clytemnestra couldn't deny that it was a good match. A king and the son of a goddess? Achilles' name already echoed through the palaces of the kings and the hovels of beggars, as one who would end the war, and Iphigenia was to be his wife, it was a good match. So, why did Agamemnon look that way? Iphigenia noticed it too, and Agamemnon tried to force a smile. A man has many cares when he's a king in general too. Iphigenia leapt up and rubbed his forehead, to playfully smooth his brow, telling him to be all hers for today. While she was still a girl, tomorrow, she would be a woman, and belong with her husband. Agamemnon grimaced. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's what he wanted to think about. Iphigenia was smiling. She was leaving here without a father or a mother. She was leaving here with a husband. Sure, he was going to war, and she wasn't technically leaving with him, but he was going to war led by her father, the bravest, most honorable man she knew. Of course they would win. Clytemnestra, though, eyes narrowed, handed off the crying Orestes to Iphigenia, and took her husband by the arm, leading him into the tent. What is it? Clytemnestra demanded. Agamemnon looked to the ground. Her husband's going to war. She won't see him for months, years even. She's going to live in an empty palace with strangers waiting on her until he comes home, if he comes home, Agamemnon said, not looking at his wife. Hmm. Clytemnestra asked when the wedding would take place. Agamemnon replied that It would take place as soon as the full moon came to give its blessing. She was to make the wedding feast ready alongside the Argive ships, and Agamemnon would see to the sacrifice. Then, Clytemnestra was to leave. Leave, Clytemnestra said, leave her child on the eve of her wedding? Who would give her away? Who would raise the bridal torch? Agamemnon said he would do it, it didn't matter. Clytemnestra couldn't be here though, they had more children left at home maidens who were left in a palace to themselves with no guard. Besides, walking among the warriors was no place for her. This queen, he expected her to leave immediately, without another word. Clytemnestra laughed. Their other daughters were safe, and Clytemnestra? Clytemnestra could handle herself. When they got married, oh my bad, sorry, when Agamemnon killed her previous husband and forced her into marriage, just so they were clear, he told her that she would rule the household. And nothing more. Well, here was the place where the great king had no authority. This was her domain, and she would give her daughter away at her wedding. Agamemnon was speechless, and Clytemnestra smirked. That's what she thought. She strode from the tent. We'll see what Achilles thinks of his surprise marriage, but that will be right after this. All right, now back to the show. Uh, what? Achilles asked and withdrew his hand. What was Iphigenia talking about? Clytemnestra asked again. Was Achilles excited for his wedding? Clytemnestra smiled and reassured Iphigenia. Achilles cocked an eyebrow, maybe? Depends what they were talking about, because he had no idea what they were talking about. He said he had a kid and a serious long-term relationship back on Syros. He was already in a committed thing. Who are you again? Achilles asked. Clytemnestra said that she was the queen. And this, Iphigenia, was to be his new wife. Hadn't Achilles asked for her hand or anything? He shook his head. No, he he respected Agamemnon, but he never approached the high king about anything. Well, then why have I heard you're getting married? Achilles threw up his hands. He really didn't have time for this. He was busy trying to keep his group of guys from killing that other group of guys until they waited for the wind to come back so they could sail and kill a separate group of guys. It was all very complicated, but he didn't know what was going on here. They should all go talk to Agamemnon. The three found their way from the ships of the Myrmidons, Achilles' people, to the grand tent of Agamemnon, the high king, when a shape stole out and clasped the queen on her arm, dragging her to where the servants slept. She protested, but he threw his hand over her mouth. If Iphigenia didn't know what to do, and Achilles? Achilles kind of wanted to see where this was all going. They followed Clytemnestra and the stranger to the tents of the servants. You trying to get your head chopped off? Because this is how you get your head chopped off, Clytemnestra spat when the servant uncovered her mouth. You two have to leave right now, the servant said in little more than a low whisper. And you have to explain yourself right now, Clytemnestra replied. They were here for her daughter's wedding, to this man. The man looked at Achilles and face palmed. And this man, did he know anything about the wedding? Clytemnestra shook her head. No, he did not. That's because there's not going to be a wedding, the man replied. He introduced himself. He was an attendant to Agamemnon. He had been in the tent the day that Agamemnon spoke to Calchas, the prophet. Agamemnon hadn't summoned Iphigenia here to marry her off. He had summoned her here because the winds weren't moving and the gods had demanded a sacrifice. Artemis had lost a deer, so Agamemnon would lose the child that he loved most. Clytemnestra gasped, and Iphigenia shook before breaking out in tears. It made sense. The sudden marriage to a recognizable name enough to get them to come immediately, without question, and why Agamemnon had tried to get Clytemnestra to leave before the wedding, which would take place right after the sacrifice. Clytemnestra hung her head. She knew Agamemnon, the real Agamemnon. He might be high king, but he was still that little exile boy, afraid that it was all going to disappear like smoke on the wind. He might command his men, but he also feared them, He agonized over the decision. If that helps, the attendant said. It really doesn't, Clytemnestra replied, and he was right. They had to leave. That's literally what I've been saying the entire time, the attendant replied. Again, not helping. Clytemnestra turned to Achilles, the young hero, standing there disgusted. She asked if he would help her and Iphigenia get to the chariot home, and the son of Peleus nodded. He was enraged at Agamemnon for listening to a prophet and attempting to sacrifice a child. But if he was being honest, he was even angrier for dragging Achilles' name into it. There was a field full of famous Greek heroes out there. Pick anyone but him. Clytemnestra cocked an eyebrow. Okay. As long as Achilles was on board, she didn't care about the motivation. She asked Achilles what he needed. But Achilles paused. At the mention of Agamemnon's fear of his men and the Greek army, Achilles said he had another plan. He turned to the attendant, confirming that Agamemnon was conflicted. The attendant nodded, really, did he have to repeat everything? He said Agamemnon sent a second letter, telling them to stay, but Menelaus intercepted it. Achilles sheathed the sword. Maybe this wouldn't come to a fight. If he was conflicted, how much more so would he be when he saw the weeping form of Iphigenia? In the Greeks, The Greeks would never go for human sacrifice, no matter the reward. Achilles would defend the mother and daughter if it came to conflict, but he didn't think it would. Achaemenna might have hints of megalomania, but he was still a reasonable man. It would be okay. Achilles turned to Iphigenia, and told her to stay hidden unless her mother called for her. They were going to talk to her dad. Agamemnon met Clytemnestra outside of his tent with a smile. He looked at Achilles. So, the man had heard the good news. Awesome. Achilles was silent. Agamemnon turned back to Clytemnestra, saying that the sacrifices were about to be underway for the wedding ceremony. Where was Iphigenia? Clytemnestra was such a fan of customs that she just had to stay and see her daughter married. Of course, she knew that the bride and groom should be present at the sacrifices. Oh, I'm coming, Achilles said. Cool, cool. Not at all serious and menacing. Agamemnon called out to his daughter, but no one came. Iphigenia, you can come out now, Clytemnestra added. And instantly, the girl appeared from the tents. Agamemnon's face morphed from a strange smile to a very real frown. Why was his daughter weeping? Just hours ago, she had hugged him. Are you going to kill our daughter? Agamemnon? Clytemnestra asked. Agamemnon, high king of the Greeks, stood frozen for half a beat until he furrowed his brow. What sort of question was that? He screamed, spit flying from his mouth. Clytemnestra replied that it was a fair one. She was unflinching. Agamemnon stood there in silence, the quiet convicting him. He said that Clytemnestra didn't understand. It was an impossible choice, Either he gave up his daughter, his favorite child, or the Greeks themselves would turn on him. As Agamemnon and Clytemnestra spoke, the army of the Greeks began to circle around to hear. Agamemnon continued, It was true. Artemis demanded a sacrifice, or the men would never sail across the sea to Troy. They would be stranded here, forced to return home after months with nothing to show for the lost time. No glory, no riches, entire cities mustered for nothing they would turn on Argos and Sparta and Mycenae to take what they saw as theirs. And what prayer would you utter? Clytemnestra asked her husband. After he sacrificed their child, what prayer would he utter when it was done? What would the blessing be that he would invoke upon himself as he killed his own child? Would any child of his ever face him when they learned what he did? Why did Clytemnestra have to lose? When, if the Greeks won, the woman who started this Helen, would get to return to her own daughter? It was if turn to wrap her arms around her father's legs and weep. She begged him not to send her, but, if it must be her, to kiss her one last time on her forehead, that she may carry it with her when she meets death. Agamemnon stepped back. It had to be done. He was the king. He had to do it for Greece. With that, he stepped back into his tent. He could give the order that was about all he would do. He wouldn't watch it be carried out. Achilles then stepped forward, looking out on the host of Greek warriors that surrounded him. He said that he had more faith in his fellow soldiers than Agamemnon. Prophets were, at best, men who, with any luck, told the truth sometimes. He knew that the Greeks were better than to demand a child be sacrificed so they could go to war. If the wind didn't pick up, they would row. And no matter what obstacles the gods threw in their way, they would overcome them because they were the Greeks and... But Achilles never really got to finish that sentence. The rock that smashed into the temple of the mythological king made sure of that. The Greek host, it seemed, did not share his sentiments. When Achilles rose, blood flecks on his tunic, he drew his sword and looked in the direction from which the rock had come. But then he lowered his sword. It was one of his own men, his Myrmidons, from his kingdom. He wiped the blood from his head and opened his mouth to speak again, but saw that men by the dozens were beginning to pick up rocks of their own. Achilles' resolve hardened. He gripped his sword. That was when the crowd parted, and Odysseus, the king of Ithaca, stepped forward. He told Achilles that he couldn't die. Not here. Not like this. But these men would kill him, and they would take the girl. He didn't like it. Agamemnon didn't like it. Even Calchus the prophet didn't like it. But it was what the gods demanded, so there was no choice. If Achilles chose to die here, Odysseus hoped the prophets really were men who, with luck, told the truth sometimes. Because they said Achilles was the one who would end the war. If he died here, all these men would be lost before the end. Still, nothing changed for Achilles. He gritted his teeth and gripped his sword, ready to jump into the fray for the last time, when he felt a hand on his shoulder. It was Iphigenia. She wouldn't have so much bloodshed for her. She told Achilles to stand down. She would do it. She would die. Achilles turned to see the bloodshot, tear-soaked eyes of Iphigenia. She said that Artemis had decided to take her life. Who was she to stand against a goddess? She turned to the crowd of warriors. What she did now, she did for Greece. Iphigenia turned to Clytemnestra, telling her not to mourn. Iphigenia was doing what was necessary. She would give Greece safety crowned with victory. This was how it was always supposed to end. This was fate. Clytemnestra understood, but she wanted to know, what could she do to remember Iphigenia? To honor her memory in Mycenae, and Argos. Iphigenia had an answer for that. Clytemnestra shouldn't hate Agamemnon for this. He did it against his own will. He was a weak man, but he wasn't an evil man. Clayton muster hugged Orestes closer to her chest and was almost relieved when Odysseus stepped forward to start the procession down to the altar. Her first child, a boy she had with her first husband, Tantalus, and now Iphigenia, both had been taken by Agamemnon. She could make the promise not to hate Agamemnon, but she could never keep it. Not now. Clytemnestra stood, far off, as the warriors, led by Odysseus, took Iphigenia and walked her down to the beach. There was a simple stone altar. Achilles protested, but he respected the wishes of Iphigenia and, persuaded by Odysseus' words, didn't fight anymore. In the end, he admired Iphigenia's strength and wished that they really had been betrothed they could have made each other very happy. Iphigenia had strength and resolve, but she also had fear. As they lowered her head to the altar, and as the priest took up the axe, Iphigenia trembled, and even the most determined Greek warrior's resolve nearly broke. When the axe came down, Achilles didn't allow himself to look away. This was the cost of war, of glory. Odysseus sighed, thinking of his own child, and wondering if he would have been able to do the same. Clytemnestra shuddered as the sound of the axe echoed through the camp, and she boarded a chariot for home, one that she had ridden out on with two children, but on which she now left with just one. Agamemnon was alone. He had excused himself to an isolated spot on the hill, to weep away from his men. Everyone, though, felt the wind. The instant the sacrifice was completed, the wind picked up for the first time in months. A westerly, one that, with some luck, would take them straight to Troy. There will be no feasting that night, just solemn remembrance of a brave young woman and a fear of what else they might have to sacrifice before the end. Next week, we're going from all the sadness in the Aegean to a guy who lives in the Catskills in upstate New York who just wants to drink and bowl with strangers. Is that really so much to ask? For his wife who tends their farm and his children who he's supposed to be supporting, yes, yes it is. If you'd like to support the show beyond telling a friend or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, there's a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a cardboard cat condo, a series of boxes for your cat to play in, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of this show that are not just Amazon shipping you boxes in much larger boxes. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this time is El Pollo Maligno, the evil chicken, and he's from Colombia. There are weeks where I search and search for a creature, and then there are weeks where I read The Evil Chicken and know that we're going to do that creature no matter how much or how little info there is on the thing. El Pollo Maligno is, well, a giant evil chicken that lives in the forests of South America. Known to appear whenever two or more horseback riders congregate, you might be thinking, hey, I find horses to be smelly, dangerous, and scary. I'm good. Well, if you like playing cards, drinking, or jokes, you too are not safe from the voracious appetite of the evil chicken. I mean... Who hates jokes? The evil chicken, that's who. Can't blame him, he's just living up to his name. When you and your buddy are riding your horse down the road, the evil chicken will cluck a sound, that's somewhere in between a normal chicken cluck and a human voice. So just like, cluck, cluck, cluck. In some places, the clucking drives you mad, and in other places, it's just an annoying portent of doom. Either way, if it sounds like some guy is just clucking and luring you into the forest, don't follow it. That's just sound life advice. If you do follow it, it's your standard evil creature in the forest behavior of devouring you whole. I'm not saying people deserve to get eaten by a giant evil chicken. That'd be bad. But if people willingly follow a giant evil chicken into the jungle, uh, that's because you have some options if you hear the clucking. One, go home or just move away from the clucking and you'll probably be safe. Number two, pray to St. Michael and continue your horseback ride through a jungle infested with deadly chickens. There's another version that says that the evil chicken is actually the devil, which isn't hard to believe. And if you find a stranger alone on the road that's been following you, and you inevitably take off into a run, that stranger will transform into a giant chicken and fly in front of you. If you steel yourself and do not panic, the chicken won't eat you, but will instead hogtie you with vines and leave you in the middle of the jungle. So, yeah, either it's an evil chicken who will devour you immediately, or the devil in a chicken suit that will leave you tied up in the jungle to die slowly. Either way, just stay away from evil South American chickens, everybody. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. And I want to say thanks again to SimpliSafe for sponsoring us this week. SimpliSafe makes home security easy with no contract, hidden fees, or fine print. For just $15 a month, you get 24-7 professional monitoring throughout your home. And SimpliSafe uses their revolutionary video verification technology to visually confirm that break-ins are happening, allowing police to get to you three and a half times faster. Visit simplysafecom legends and you'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. That's simplysafe.com slash legends. Simplysafe.com slash legends. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.